Living Time and the Integration of the Life by Dr. Morris Nichol. We left off with... He would be speaking about recurrence, which is something I'm not really looking forward to because it's really complex and it's challenging to people who have grown up on this planet, <laughs> in this culture, because we don't really have any kind of... Well, you know, we like quick little labels like reincarnation. And reincarnation, we want, to, we want that to be transmigration, reincarnation. We just want to simplify everything because we don't understand much. And it takes so much effort to think when we could have someone else do our thinking for us. Political parties, Google, Amazon, Twitter, Facebook... ABC, NBC, CNN. We like all those organizations and people to think for us, the church and so on and so forth. So it's difficult for us. But I want you to, you know, bite the bullet and pull your diapers up and let's just see what we can do. The Ionian order is full form, unknown to us in time. Unknown to us in time because we are blind in time, in the same way that the two-dimensional beings are blind to the third dimension. Limited form is time, for it is like a single note of a composition in which we do not hear the remainder, but hear only another note in succession in time, derived perhaps from another composition. The word of God, Logos, expressed in Eon, is the full form, the full proportion of all possible ratios, the full meaning and relations of things, having infinite diversity within its form. For we must not think of form, idea, as fixed, as we think of three-dimensional form, but rather as musical form, ever blending and transforming itself within its own proportions, combining variation with variation without departing from its essential being from what it is, and so remaining ever the same or ever in one. These are very difficult concepts for us, but I think I've used the example of the ocean and the waves in the ocean. The ocean is one, but there are waves in the ocean, and they're moving all the time, and the ocean is moving all the time, and everything that's living in the ocean is living in the ocean all the time, but it's all one. So it's this fluid oneness of changing but not changing, do you see, of movement but not real change. So that's as good as it gets right now for me to be able to explain to you or give you an idea of what he's talking about, because uh, Dr. Nickel could be rather cerebral. He came from a different culture, a different time, and if he could talk to us now, he would probably whip open a... Well, of course, back then, I don't think they even had jars of baby food or cans of baby food. I think they actually, back then, had to really make the baby food themselves by grinding it. In fact, I know they did because my parents did. You know, not everyone bought Gerber's. Some people used to make their own baby food for their babies, whatever it is they were eating, and they'd grind it up with these little food grinder things. Anyway, today, if you talk to somebody about that, they just look at you like you had two heads. Really? They used to do that? Yes, and a Coke used to be five cents, and a penny postcard used to be a penny. Yeah, it was that way, and a nickel phone call used to be a nickel. And a nickel candy bar used to be a nickel. Now a nickel candy bar is like a dollar or a dollar fifty. So, and they're not nickel candy bars anymore. They're actually smaller. So they increase the price and decrease the size. It's the way of the world. And time, by constant, is a fragment, a succession of bits, a patchwork. 
Surely you can see that the way that we see time, it is a succession. It's sequential. Past, present, future. Past, present, future. And we don't see the past and we don't see the future. All we see is the present. It's like a sequential turn signal with three blinks. Boom, boom, boom. One blinks, then the next blinks, then the next blinks. And for us, it's all now, 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 even though it represents past, present, future. What comes next in time for our experience is not necessarily variation within form, for what comes next in time may be quite unrelated to what preceded it. So contiguity in time is largely mere change from one thing to another. Our consciousness is incapable of remaining stable enough, owing to its lack of unity, to apprehend form, that is, the infinite working out of one thing, the expansion of one motive into all possible transformations, and probably due to our consciousness incapable of remaining stable, we are incapable of giving our attention to anything for any serious period of time because our consciousness is so unstable, because we are so unstable, because we lack integrity, we lack unity of being. We lack unity of anything. We don't have unity in our minds. We don't have unity in our emotions. We don't have unity. And because we don't, we have all these separate wills, all these different thoughts, all these different feelings, and they're all conflicting and going here and there. One minute you're depressed, the next minute you're excited, one minute you're thinking about this, the next second you're thinking about that. So it's not too difficult to say that we lack unity. In this sense, I understand how time is an imitation of eternity and how logos in eon, as the infinite meaning of everything, cannot enter the natural level of consciousness. It simply cannot enter our level of consciousness because our level of consciousness is natural. It is formed by the world, formed by the senses, and limited by those things. And so we're kind of stuck. Even the greatest art can only make copies of the invisible center of full meaning round which we are set. And we can understand how transformation of meaning, the seeing of new meanings within those meanings we already know, is not a process of logical thinking. You can't get there from here, sadly. It would be nice if we could, and there are people who try. And it's interesting because the people who try, they imagine that they have succeeded. And all they've done is come up with theories. They haven't come up with anything real. They've come up with theories. Well, it's like this. But when they say their theories, they never really look at it like it's a theory, an unproven thing that could be or could not be. For example, the theory of evolution. It's a theory. But you don't hear people talk about it as if it were a theory. You hear them talk about it as if it were a fact, as if it were a proven fact, and it's not. It simply is not. So this is difficult for us because we are abstract thinkers. We like to think abstractly because there is so much and our brains are incapable of dealing with so much unless we have abstractions. So you can't think of tables, but you can think of a table. How many tables can you think of? Well, you can't hold very many tables in your mind at once. But you can hold the idea of table in your mind that means all tables, all slabs with legs or slabs that are somehow elevated. We can understand how transformation of meaning, the seeing of new meanings within those meanings we already know, is not a process of logical thinking. For logical thinking deals rather with cross-sections of meaning and is capable of bringing into juxtaposition things that are entirely unrelated in their true meaning and quite incommensurable, but which look 
as if related, as a two-dimensional picture drawn without any sense of depth or perspective brings things into apparent relationship which are really far apart and unrelated. If you look at a two-dimensional drawing and you have two buildings, if there's no perspective in it, you can't tell which building is in front of which building unless they're overlapping one another. But if they're alongside of each other, you can't tell which is closer and which is further away because there is no close and far away in two dimensions. It's only three-dimensional. Now, see, that's difficult for us to comprehend because we live in the third dimension, and so we are familiar with three-dimensional. What's hard for us now is two-dimensional and four-dimensional. On either side of three dimensions, we have difficulty. This difficulty is what we're trying to deal with. In this world of meaning, of meaning within meaning, everyone is a point of reception and stands in relationship to infinite meaning according to what meanings he has opened in himself. So each person could be different according to the meanings that they've opened in themselves. But most of us have not opened very many meanings in ourselves. So most of us, you know, it's like you've heard, oh, I don't know, I, what did he look like? I don't know, they all look alike to me. You look a sheep, I don't know, they all look alike to me. And that's kind of how we are. There are differences, but pretty much we're abstract thinkers, they all look alike to us. Thinking of the universe as meaning within meaning, as something ultimately experienced in the soul, we must not blame the senses for giving us a wrong picture of things or for making us see as outside us that which is within us. It's not the senses that are at fault. This is something that people need to grasp. Look, it's not your senses that are at fault. You're using the... It's like, if you can't get the screw out of the faceplate over there on the, the switch, the electrical switch that turns the lights on and off, you can't get the screw out of the faceplate, it's not the screw's fault that you're using a pencil to try and do it, or a butter knife to try and do it, or your fingernail to try and do it. You're using the wrong tool. That's the problem. It's our use of the senses that is at fault. It's what is behind the senses, the perceiving mind, the understanding that is at fault. For the senses cleansed see all as infinite and holy. But our senses are not cleansed. And our senses are not going to be cleansed in the not-too-distant future because that's going to take effort. And I can tell by the looks on your faces that it's too late for you to start making effort. Now that it's getting dark earlier, you're... Well, you know, this is the season of depression. There's less sunlight, there's less energy. Everything is slowing down. The sap's going down out of the trees. The leaves are turning. Everything is changing now. So we, as part of the organic film that coats this planet, we're changing along with that. We don't have a lot of choice in that because our senses dictate to us what we feel, what we think, and so we're pretty much at the effect of our world. People don't like to hear this, and I'm sorry. Go somewhere else where you can hear what you like to hear. Connie had a friend, and he, he got cancer, and he didn't like the idea that he got cancer. So what did he do? Well, he went to another doctor, and that doctor told him he had cancer too. So what did he do? He went to another. He kept going to doctors until he found one who told him what he wanted to hear, and he was happy. We're like that. We don't like to think that we're like that. We'd rather think that he's like that, but we are like that. Let's reflect for a moment on what are our ordinary natural notions of eternity. The terms eternal and eternity are bound up with our time psychology. Of course they are. How else could they be bound up with anything else? We have a time psychology. Having a time psychology, anything that relates to time in any way is going to be jammed into that time psychology, whether it fits or not. It's like Cinderella's ugly stepsisters trying to get their feet in the glass slipper. 
They'll jam, they'll wiggle, they'll do anything they can to try and make it fit. We're like that too, because they only had the one foot. We only have the one-time psychology. Since we understand naturally everything in terms of our time and space, we can't help imagining that eternity means eternity of time, a vast quantity of time, time going on and on in a straight line, beyond calculation, forever and ever. That's eternity to us. And we probably think that eternal life means only something following on death, an infinite perpetuation of oneself in endless time. Now, if you've thought of this at all, which you may or may not have, but I know you have now because you're nodding your head and going, okay, I get that, then you figured that, yeah, that's pretty much how I think of it. That's what I think of eternity. We bring the same kind of thinking, the same level of mind to bear upon the notions of eternity as we do upon the things of space and time. Because that's all we know, that's what we do. In older thought, time and eternity were thought of as being incommensurable, inalienable, dissevered. This is difficult for us to even comprehend. Plato speaks of the incommensurability of dimensions. They belong to totally different levels in that scale of reality that is truly universe. Actually, to different dimensions. So they actually belong to different dimensions. We don't think about different dimensions very often because we can't. We're not equipped. We don't have the kinds of tools that we need to think about different dimensions. We're getting them now, but as a rule, naturally in life, they don't teach you about different dimensions in school. And if they do, it's all theory, and it's nothing that relates to anything about you. All that has to do with eternity, eternal life, the soul or world in eternity, was put in contrast to everything belonging to time, temporal life, the flowing world as we know it, and our customary thoughts and emotional life in it, when untouched by the sense of intenser meaning. The older thought, the older way of looking at things, separated this experience from eternity. We are not experiencing eternity as we are, and we cannot experience eternity as we are. We have to have some kind of a change of being in order to experience a different dimension, a higher dimension. Eternity was connected with the world of being, time, with the world of becoming, where nothing ever really is. Timaeus said that. In time, nothing ever is, but all things are becoming. We cannot hold on to anything or person in time because what it or he or she really is, is not there in time. What you are is not really sitting in this room. What's sitting in this room is this pressing out, this wrapper, this shell of what you really are. We find it very difficult to think like that, but you should find it a little bit easier because you've been hearing it for a couple of decades now, a few decades now, for some of you, three decades so it should be a little bit easier for you than for people who just start thinking about this. All things are changing in time, some slowly, as the contour of mountains, some more quickly, like our bodies, some very quickly, as a house on fire. So all of those things are changing and all changing at different rates. Time is change on all sorts of different scales, and the phenomenal world is made up of this continual changing at different rates of everything. Like an enormous clock full of wheels, outside there's this stream of becoming, and within a stream of ever-changing thoughts and feelings, a succession of different eyes, of fragmentary bits of ourselves, an inner world of becoming in which nothing is, in which we possess nothing and do not possess ourselves. This is very important. Because we are governed by the changing events outside of us, we do not possess ourselves. 
because ourselves are constantly changing according to whatever is happening out here. So you can't possess yourself because something else possesses you. You're possessed by the five senses and the world that the five senses brings to you, shows you as the only world that you know until you start to discover through ideas that come from higher or beyond us, more conscious beings. When I say more conscious beings, I don't want you to think of Martians or there are more conscious beings sitting in this room, right across from you. There are people who are more and less conscious in this room. There are people who are half asleep. There are people who are a tenth asleep. There are people who are 90% asleep in this room. There are people who are more conscious. Funny, Curtis and I were going somewhere. He was driving because I don't really like to drive and he doesn't seem to mind. We were driving somewhere and I said, well, you want to make a left up here. And how I knew that... He slowed down a little bit, and he was hesitating. So he didn't really know where he was going to make his left. He knew he was going to make a left, but he didn't know where. And so I noticed the hesitation. It was just a slight hesitation, but I noticed it. And I said, well, it's not this one. It's the next one or two more or whatever it was. And so he said, well, thanks. And then it came up again. And I said this at the same kind of thing. It's like, no, no, it's this one. And he said, you know, that's what I love about you. You're just so conscious that you pick up all these little nuances, you know, this little thing that nobody else would pick up. And it's like, well, yeah, I've spent my life honing this. I've spent my life working on being more aware. And after a while, even for a dullard and a dunce like me, you get a little more aware. It does work if you do it. It's like anything else. Perfect practice makes perfect. Bad practice makes not perfect. But that's an example of some of us are more conscious than others. Some of us come along with ideas that others would not think of. But where did they get those ideas? Well, they got those ideas from someone else who was more conscious than them. And it trickles down. And as it trickles down, unfortunately, it gets diluted and it gets changed a little bit. Still, if the real meaning, the real intention of the idea is there, it doesn't lose its efficacy not completely. So it still has the ability to pull you up a little. And all these ideas, even though here we get B-influence ideas, we're not getting clean C-influence ideas, we're getting B-influence ideas, they still have the power to raise you up a little bit, raise your being a little bit, if you apply yourself to it in a way that works. We think of all this changing in time as progress. Not only do we have this extraordinary and absurd illusion, this is so funny because people really do believe the world is getting better. I mean, they really do. They, oh, this is progress. And, you know, older people look at it and go, no, I don't think so. And you're, oh, you're just a cynic. Well, okay, who cares to contend? I don't have the desire to contend with people. If you're happy with your limited awareness of things, I don't want to change that. Go ahead and have that. If you're not happy with it, if you see room for improvement, great, then let's talk. But I'm not carry nation. I'm not trying to save anybody or anything. It's like, this is only for people who want it. And there are not many people who want it. As a matter of fact, there are fewer and fewer people who want it. In my experience, why would you want this when you could have a whole phony life on Twitter and Facebook? I mean, really, why would you want to face the reality of what's going on around us when you could have a plastic life, an illusion of, if you don't like that, you just block that person. You don't like that, you just delete that. Why would you want to deal with this reality that just keeps on coming at you, that bruises you and that abrades you? Why would you want that if you could do without it? 
Well, because some people have figured out that that's really the only way to any kind of real peace and real happiness. But most people have not figured that out, and they're not ever going to figure it out. So this absurd illusion about everything's progressing is one that pretty much just comes standard. It's like USDA stamped on your forehead. Your United States Department of Agriculture stamped food for the moon. You just are, and you're not going to think your way out of that very easily. And most people will never think their way out of it. But we imagine that the stability that we all secretly crave can be sought for in all this machinery of change. We think we're going to find it here. Well, we just get this house or this car. We forget all about all that's going to change. Well, we get this girl or this guy. We forget all that's going to change. We're very forgetful when it comes to things like that. In the turning wheels of this enormous clock, we think somehow we're going to find some kind of stability. But we know that what is stable was always put beyond time. In man, it was said there is something behind his time psychology, some definite possibility of being called eternity or eternal life. So there is this possible being, a level of being that's possible to you, that's possible to every one of us. Now, it's more possible to some than to others, just like being a violinist is more possible to some than to others, meaning some people are closer to it and some people are further away from it, but it's still possible. So it's possible to us, a level of being that's possible to us that's called eternity or eternal life, something you can move into. Ecclesiastes says that while all things are governed by time in the invisible world and man is under the dominion of time, he has set eternity in the heart of man. Chapter 3, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes. Here the word is olam, merely rendered as world in our usual versions, but signifying the macrocosmos, that is, the apprehension of higher space and of possibility in man. So there is something in you that is connected to the infinite. It's like an umbilical cord, and it connects you to the infinite. So it's a possibility. It's only natural to the thought of that period that Ecclesiastes, after speaking of that order of reality belonging to passing time, should refer to another order outside time. He says that the heart of man can comprehend higher reality up to a point. This is another thing that our pride and vanity doesn't let us accept very easily. You can only understand things up to a point. We imagine that we can understand anything. We imagine if we wanted to, we could understand anything. And if we don't, it's because someone didn't explain it to us properly. It's always someone else's fault. It's never ours, or rarely ever ours. When you start to see fault in yourself, you have begun to awaken. I mean, when you stop blaming everybody else for everything that happens in life and in your life, for all of your shortcomings, when you stop blaming somebody else, you have begun to awaken. That is one of the signs of awakening. You start to realize just how limited you really are. It can be incredibly depressing, but it doesn't last forever, unless, of course, you want it to, because keeping something going and going and going, that's our idea of eternity. That's our answer to eternity. When we can't grasp eternity, what we do is repeat. Repetition is our answer to eternity. The real distinction, therefore, between time and eternity is qualitative, and so must lie in the realm of psychological experience. It's not something that's going to lie in the realm of your physical senses, your physical experience. Considered abstractly, no quantity of time can produce eternity. You could take billions and billions of years. That will not produce eternity. There's nothing whatever to do with eternity. All that is is change. It's a step down from eternity. Time is a step down from eternity. 
Just as no matter how far we extend the line, we cannot produce a square or a cube. Considered psychologically, no quantity of temporal experience can constitute a moment of eternal experience. Eternity cannot be defined by time or have any relation to it. Spinoza said that we must clearly get rid of all associative connections with time before we can begin to understand what is meant by eternity. This is not going to happen in the not-too-distant future. You are not going to get rid of all associative connections with time. It's just not going to happen. But you can get rid of some, and that is what we'll call progress. Getting rid of some will give you the opportunity to understand what is meant by eternity. Especially, must we cancel the expression forever and ever. When glory is given to God forever and ever, Eonian existence is meant. The imagination being lifted to another order of reality above time, unto the eon or unto the eon of eons, God is pre-Eonian in order of dignity, that is, scale. That's what in order of dignity means. It means scale, an idea that we meet with long before the New Testament was written. We've also seen the order God, eon, time in the Hermetic quotation, but because we have particularly nowadays no sense of scale, the language referring to eternity and the language referring to time are continually mixed together. This is tragic because without some way to define it, it's very difficult to talk about it. Psychologically, then, eternity was connected with a possible state of man, a full state of being. So I want you to think of eternity completely outside of time, having nothing whatever to do with time, but having only to do with a state of being. So you can see now that it's vertical, not horizontal. Time we see as horizontal, but being you must see as vertical. You can be higher or lower in being. You can't be higher or lower in time, can you? Now, you can be in the past, you can be in the present, you can be in the future. So you can only be in the present. You can't be higher or lower because it goes past, present, future. But in being, it goes up and down. You can be higher or lower in being. Cosmologically, it referred to a perfect form of the world behind the perceptions of man. So what we can't see, behind all that, there is something else. Perfect form of the world that we cannot see because of the limitation of our five senses, they keep us locked down here in this experience. Let's turn to some thoughts and definitions. Allsoever where the was is one thing, and the shall be is another, is begotten but never is. It marches with time by which it is measured in becoming to be. In contrast to this flux, all that is eternal is whole at once. Proclus. The distinction is clearly qualitative. You can see we're not talking about quantity. We're talking about the quality of something. Karl Barth observes, If I have a system, it consists in this, that to the best of my ability, I always keep in mind what Kierkegaard has called the infinite qualitative distinction between time and eternity, alike in its negative and positive meaning. He remarks that man loses himself in himself by confusing time and eternity and therefore eternity with time. You must see that you are lost in yourself. You're not lost in the world. You can locate yourself exactly in the world. Try to locate yourself in your inner world, and you will find that you are absolutely lost. You don't know where you are. I'd have said you don't know where the hell you are, but you can't say that in a podcast. <laughs> he attempts what cannot be attempted owing to this confusion of thought. W.G. Hansen, Karl Barth, page 14, 1931. Hansen points out that the lack of perception due to the lack of recognition of scale in the universe, 
of the difference between time and eternity gives man a sense of being able to achieve, a sense that he can achieve that is entirely false. When you move into this idea of being, the whole world is already finished. It's already done. Everything that's ever been done is done. Everything that ever was is. Everything that ever will be is. It's a whole, complete sea, ocean, as it were, with all the living, moving stuff in it, but it's all the same. It's done. It's a finished product. Creation was finished. But here, down here, it's still this changing stuff. It's still oozing and moving and unwinding. He quotes the almost forgotten lines, doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death, etc. Today, for example, we have the idea that we can conquer nature. This is clearly one of man's most absurd ideas, that he is somehow going to control tornadoes and tsunamis, and, and we're finding out that we are you know, earthquakes. We imagined for a long time that we were going to do that, and now we're beginning to see that it's going to be a little more difficult than we thought, and it may take a few more years more than we had anticipated. That's how arrogant we are. That's how out of touch we are with reality. Psychologically, this wholeness or completeness, which is connected with the word eternity, is compared to a state in which a man abides in one. It was said at the beginning of this chapter that the idea of unity and the meaning of eternity are connected. The expressions one, single, unity, wholeness are all related in this sense. And in contrast to this idea of one, all that belongs to time was said to follow number. That is, it did not abide in one, but ran away into time, in succession, into two, three, four, five, etc. You can see this, yes? You can see the ocean is one. You can see that everything that belongs, and then we're thinking of the ocean as eternity. Okay. You can see that everything that belongs in our world is one car, two car, three car. There's a train going by, one, two, three. You can count the cars in succession. So it's all, you can count the days in succession. Okay. The idea of wholeness and its meaning and its relationship to eternity is given in the beautiful description of Bothius. I give it here in full because it is so often marred by being quoted in part. I'm not going to give it here in full because we are out of time. Because down here, we're out of time. And we do live down here. So we'll pick up with this. Can I really say next time? Another time? Yeah, really, when you think about it, we are so, you can see how locked into it we are. There is it just, we can't even speak. We can't even form sentences without, think about the parts of speech. Past tense, present tense, future tense, subjective. It's like holy mackerel. We are truly like the little fish. Mommy, what's water? We take it so for granted. We are so asleep that our chances of coming to terms with this are slim, somewhere between slim and none. Without these ideas to help pull us up, lift us up out of this, we're lost. You would never come to this on your own. That's our take on it. And I feel sorry for the people who, like, who walk away from this like, that's just, I can't do this. You know, one of the things that has, has been a problem for Connie and I is that she will get to a certain point. She'll go, I, and she'll see me working on something. She's good. I'd have quit that days ago. I don't know why you do it. She said, I would just not do it, which is true. There are things she will just absolutely quit. But what she doesn't understand that there are other things that she will not quit. She's been painting for, wow, a long time, you know, and she doesn't quit learning. She's always pressing, always pressing, always trying. What it is, is that what she values and what I value are different. She values painting. I value the invisible. I value what is not of this realm. I value eternity. I value eternal life. 
I value higher states of being. She values being able to do things here and now. There's nothing wrong with either one. One takes precedence over the other. I have chosen what is better for myself. But that doesn't mean you have to. You can take whatever part of that, you know, the crumbs that fall from the master's table, as it were. You can take whatever part of that you want. I have chosen the best part for myself. It doesn't mean that I've got it all. It doesn't mean I've got a market on it or a corner on it. All it means is, this is what I've chosen. It's wide open to anyone who wants it. The sad part is, not many people want it. And especially when they find out what it takes to get it. You know, it's like meditation. Everybody wants to meditate. Nobody wants to sit down for an hour and practice it. <laughs> I was talking to my neighbor the other day, and I told him that I get up at 3 a.m. to meditate for an hour. He said, I need to do that. I'm so stressed. I just laughed. I didn't say anything to him because people don't like to hear the truth. But there's no way he's ever, ever, ever going to do that. He's just not going to do it. He's busy. He's busy with life. It's funny because today he was over and he said, man, I, I want to be in your shoes. <laughs> I just laughed at him. I just laughed at him. I thought, this is hilarious. He says, I want to be living your life. No, dude, you don't. Because if you did, you would. You want to be living your life, which is exactly why you are living your life. This is the great lie. We look at other people and we'd say, I want that. This is the lie. What we want is what we have, because that's what we're willing to do. And what you have is what you're willing to do. Anything else is a lie. It's fantasy. It's imagination. Live lightly with few duties. Sounds great, but you won't do it. But I do. Truth is every day.